1954, C.S. Lewis published an essay called Xmas and Christmas, a lost chapter from Herodotus. It is about a, a certain winter custom on a, on a fictional island. And this is a, a short excerpt from that much longer piece, sort of roughly uh, midway, and you'll, you'll pick up on that as I read it. Uh, Lewis writes, they also send gifts to one another, suffering the same things about the gifts as about the cards, or even worse. For every citizen has to guess the value of the gift which every friend will send to him, so that he may send one of equal value, whether he can afford it or not. And they buy as gifts for one another such things as no man ever bought for himself, for the sellers, understanding the custom, put forth all kinds of trumpery, and whatever, being useless and ridiculous, they have been unable to sell throughout the year, they now sell as an Xmas gift. Well, understand, if you know anything about Lewis, Lewis was no joyless Grinch. Uh, he had been a long-time participant and concerned observer of what was in those days, and I think certainly would be the case in our own, this, this contrast, maybe even conflict, and yet overlap all at the same time of Xmas and Christmas coexisting all in the same place. Um, I think we could say we share something of that sentiment uh, here this morning, many of us. Uh, something of an instinctive sense that, you know, there's something, there's, there's much that's right with the giving of gifts this time of year. We're, we're good with that. That seems to make sense. And yet at the same time, we recognize that as it plays out, there's a lot that's wrong with that. There's a lot that just seems to has, has gone off the rails with that custom, that tradition. And so it would seem that it would behoove us to turn to the Scriptures and let it speak to this custom, to this tradition. And where are we? And what exactly are we doing? And why are we doing it? So if you have a Bible with you, I'd ask you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. Uh, Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Matthew is the, the first of the Gospels that we have. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. We're in Matthew, Matthew chapter 2. Some of you may recognize this as the, uh, the historical narrative, the account of the visit of the wise man, or is oftentimes referred to as the Magi. Matthew 2, verses 1 through 12. Hear now God's word. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written of, by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly, and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with 
his, Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Would you pray with me? Lord, we ask that you would stir within our hearts and our minds now. Uh, for many of us, this is perhaps a very familiar text. Uh, it has been dramatized. It has been um, set to music. It has uh, certainly appeared in, in no few forms in uh, popular media and culture. Uh, yet this is a historical narrative. This, these are events recorded for us. And we ask that you would help us to understand here in the midst of this Christmas celebration, in the midst of many traditions, many customs in particular, the giving and exchanging of, of gifts, uh, we ask that you would help us to be uh, wise and discerning, even worshipful as we engage in that. And we pray in your name. Amen. So here's an Associated Press story from July 2005. First one sheep jumped to its death, then another and another, then dozens more. Having left their herds to graze while they ate breakfast, stunned Turkish shepherds now watched as nearly 1,500 others leapt off the same cliff. The first 450 animals died under the billowy pile. How did that happen? What in the world was going on there? We've got two things in play. On the one hand, uh, these sheep were allowed to go down the wrong trail. And that was certainly something that could have been prevented. On the other hand, you have something that's much more instinctive, much more, much more uh, in tune with the, the nature and instincts of sheep. They have this puzzling habit, this way of just what's working in their, their little sheepy brains that once one of them in a flock determines to go down a particular trail, the others will follow the tail in front of them. And it doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter what the destination is. One picks the trail, the other ones follow the tail, and off they go. In this case, tragically, right over a cliff. Now you're thinking to yourself, perhaps, that's really interesting. What a heartwarming story. Thanks for that Merry Christmas tale. It's done me so much good. Why am I sharing that with you? Because simply for this reason, it is not enough to follow tales. It is not. It is, it is not enough to, to go with the flow. It is not enough to just keep on doing something out of custom and tradition because that's just what we do. It's, it's just not enough. We have to, in order to, we want to be able, as, as followers of Jesus, those of you in this room who are actually followers of Jesus, Christians, we ought to be about mindfully, thoughtfully, heartfully, fully engaging in all that we're doing with discernment such that what we're doing is, is something that is inspired with wonder and worship, including, I would go so far as, every one of these traditions of Christmas that we've been looking at over the last few weeks. Now, now, we started off a few weeks ago, we were talking about, okay, so we're looking at the deep-rootedness of uh, contemplation. And that was the one we were talking about, how that's the much neglected but much needed tradition of the holiday season. Then we pushed on to the second week, and we were looking at the deep-rootedness of music and song, and how that is certainly an appropriate part 
of this seasonal celebration. Last week we looked at lights and celebration and how Jesus is the light of the world, the light of all men. Certainly that is an appropriate thing to factor into part of the celebration. This week we're looking at this, and that is the giving and exchanging of gifts. That's most likely the, the one tradition, the one custom that has the most overlap across the culture with the, the, I'll say, the cultural celebration and the Christian celebration of Christmas, in both you see the giving and exchanging of these gifts. Well, here's the thing. Christmas is indeed a celebration. It is a celebration of the coming of Jesus. Christmas is indeed a celebration, a celebration of the coming of Jesus. It's, it's there in good and right that we should then be exchanging, giving these gifts. Okay, how do you back that up? Why do you say that? Look at there are three things, and you have it there in your outline, and it's sort of an, an increasing weightiness as we move through uh, these points. First, and as an admiration, giving, giving these gifts, exchanging these gifts over the course of this season, is it rational, is it appropriate? Yes, as an admiration for tradition. Secondly, as an imitation of history, and thirdly, an appreciation for God's supply. And I want to stress this point, an increasing weightiness. I'm moving through these points. Okay, so admiration, imitation, and appreciation. So first, an admiration for the tradition. That is to say, recognizing that a humble willingness, a humble willingness to grant that maybe our forebears might have passed something on to us that could be worth hearing perhaps. A, a humble willingness to acknowledge that. Now, by that, in terms of admiration for tradition, I'm not talking about Santa Claus here. Now, by that, let me qualify my qualification. I'm not dissing Santa. I'm not going to jump on the, the bandwagon of that crazy Texas pastor in the shopping mall in Amarillo. I don't know if you saw the YouTube video this past week. Who was sharing his, shall I say, pseudo-tidings of great joy with the children and their parents as they were standing in line uh, waiting for Santa. You look it up, it will entertain you. Uh, if not frighten you. Uh, so I'm not dissing Santa. What I'm saying, it's a matter of emphasis. Okay, It's a matter of emphasis. Um, it's a matter of proportion. This is something, whatever you're doing regarding that, parents, it's up to you. It's up to you to do that and to weigh that with wisdom and discernment as to how far you go with that with your children and Santa Claus. Okay, that's my qualification. We're not talking about Santa Claus. We're talking about St. Nicholas. A historical figure, a real historical figure, 4th century Bishop of Myra, modern-day Turkey. Let me tell you just a few things that we know about St. Nicholas, the real St. Nicholas. We know that he was born and raised in a wealthy Christian home. His parents died of a plague when he was young. He was passed on, raised by his uncle, who was the presiding bishop in a monastery. Uh, Nicholas, as he grew older, decided to train for the priesthood, which he did, and later came to the conviction and decision that he would give away all of the inheritance that was passed on to him from his parents, which then takes you to, from the historical figure to this historical event, one that some of you may have heard in bits and pieces, but I'm going to share all the strands uh, here for you as best has been kind of wed together by a few historians. Here you go. In his most famous exploit, Nicholas aided a poor man who had three daughters but could not afford a proper dowry for them. This meant that they would remain unmarried and probably, in absence of any other possible employment, would have to become prostitutes. Even if they did not, unmarried maidens in those days would have been assumed as being a prostitute. Hearing of the girl's plight, 
Nicholas decided to help them, but being too modest to help the family in public or to save them the humiliation of accepting charity, he went to the house under the cover of night and threw three purses, one for each daughter, filled with gold coins through the window opening into the house. One version has him throwing one purse for three consecutive nights. Another has him throwing the purses over a period of three years, each time the night before one of the daughters comes of age. Invariably, the third time, the father lies in wait trying to discover the identity of their benefactor. In one version, the father confronts the saint, only to have Nicholas say it is not him he should thank, but God alone. In another version, Nicholas learns of the poor man's plan and drops the third bag down the chimney instead. A variant holds that the daughter had washed her stockings that evening and hung them over the embers to dry and that the bag of gold fell into the stocking. And you can kind of pick up some hints of some of our, our tales that have kind of, you know, uh, I don't know what I say, grown, grown out of the historical rootedness of all of that. Why, why, what's my point? Part of our tradition, our custom of gift giving, ought to be informed by an admiration for the tradition as handed down to us in, in these historical Account. So, how, okay, how then would, in the world could possibly something like that, St. Nicholas, the history of St. Nicholas, connect, connect rather, connect to our own tradition and custom of gift giving? I would just say these two things. One, being indiscriminate. Being indiscriminate. That is to say, look beyond your own comfortable circles, beyond to other spheres of need all around you in the community, in, in, the, in the broader culture, in this world. A lot of you, I'm sure, if you're on social media, are reading a lot about. Uh, mercy needs in Aleppo right now, and giving towards such things, or towards uh, fire-ravaged uh, zones out in East Tennessee, or whatever the case the case may be, or just here locally, locally in Angel Tree and Prison Fellowship and those kinds of things. So willing to and able to be indiscriminate in our giving, looking beyond our comfortable circles, spheres, towards the needs of any and everyone made in God's image, who is suffering the effects of the fall. So indiscriminate, and then also uh, without calculation, without any thought as to what you can gain, but what credit uh, you can glean out of that action, and perhaps even going so far as to being anonymous, so that the individual, the benefactor, then has no choice but to give thanks to God. Those are some things to consider. The coming of Jesus, is the, that's what the celebration is about. Christmas is the celebration of the coming of Jesus. It's right then, it's appropriate then, to give these gifts. Now let's press into our text, though. You're like, okay, that's great. But what about, what about the passage? What about Matthew 2? Imitation of the history. God in his love for us and his grace to us gives us these historical accounts, and for a lot of reasons, one of which is to put before us the record of exemplary individuals and how they have responded in such situations as this. So I want to talk about two exemplary individuals, very, very different. One is a star, and the other is pagan astrologers, astronomers from Persia slash Babylon. Okay? These exemplary both creatures bowing before the Lord of all creation. So the star, the Lord bowing before, pointing us towards the Lord of all creation. It's interesting, the Magi there in verse uh, 2 Say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, whatever else they meant by that term, they got it right. Because that daggone star is his star.